Good morning, friends. It is so good to see you, and I am so glad that you are here. You know, as we enter into this space, as we do so very often, I just want to call out and recognize that as we come into this place, we're all coming from different places, different experiences through our week. There are some shared experiences, and then there are some that are unique to us as we step into this space. And they could be the best of the best or absolutely the worst of the worst. And wherever you are today, in what you've experienced this week, how it is all hitting you, welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where we get to share in this time, in this space set apart as sacred, that we get to encounter the risen Jesus together. This week has been full in our world of a lot of chaos, has been full of horrific images that many of us have seen come across our phones or our TVs. And in the midst of it, from last week when we, we prayed initially just for those who were experiencing the attack from Hamas onto Israel, it's now developed over the course of a week to a full-blown war. And the weight of that alone is enough to make my heart just want to pause and have the rest of the world pause in that moment so that we can together, band together, to put together the broken pieces. But the world doesn't stop in that as much as I want it to stop and let's make it all right I'm a little bit of a fixer. <laughs> but the world doesn't stop as much as I want to, and then I'm reminded in these moments, even as Joel just shared with us, that also some of the best news that anyone could get unfolded this week. And so how could we want that to stop? But in all of it, there is this tension, right? There's this tension pulling on us this tension toward goodness. But then clouds of evil unfolding in our midst that pull us in other directions. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed in those spaces. I've this week felt overwhelmed many times, praying for those, those in our midst that we have direct connection to people who were taken hostage in Israel. And their, their whereabouts are unknown yet, a week later. And so in that, trying myself to just step into this space with the Lord, understand that there is nothing that is apart from God. There's no person on the face of this planet now or that was or that will be that is out of the sight of our God. And so I wrote just a couple of breath prayers that I've been praying myself, and I just want to share them with you. If you got my email yesterday, they're in there, but I just want to share in this time to take a moment to breathe deep, that though the world can't stop, we have the ability to slow down. We have the ability to slow down and mourn with those who mourn, the ability to slow down and celebrate with those who are celebrating and trust that God is bridging the gap in the midst of all of it. So these breath prayers that are on the screen, we're going to just do them line by line. If you want to join me in them, you're welcome to. If you just want to sit and let it wash over you, you're welcome to do that. But it starts first with a deep breath in. So let's just practice the breathing first. Breathe in. And breathe out. And so let's breathe in and pray this first one together. Let your light break into darkness. And breathe in. 
bring rescue and release for the captives. And breathe in. Merciful Jesus, bring peace in places of war. As you're processing everything that's unfolding in our world in unprecedented attacks, unprecedented response, if you need to talk to somebody, all our staff is here for you. You can go to the Sunday page of our website and, and find um, the connection just on our website. You can find a connection, emails or scheduling for any of our pastors. Or if you are looking to connect with a professional counselor, there is nothing next to Jesus, and Jesus <laughs> is the best thing. But next to that, a counselor who also knows and loves Jesus, who has been able to walk with me in that, has been the greatest gift. And if you are interested or looking to connect with a professional counselor, you know, we're happy to help build those bridges as well. So please let us know. We're happy to walk with you in this. I just want to pray over us as we begin to dive in today. Receive this. Lord of all creation, as the world experiences the upheaval and chaos of evil unfolding, hear our cries. Rend our hearts for the innocent lives caught in the peril of war. God, every name, every whereabouts is known to you even now. We ask your protection, your deliverance for all taken captive, those trapped by advancing forces. God, we lament the death and destruction that is unfolding each day, and we see it through screens, through windows into it without fully experiencing it, God. But we can feel it, and we can relate, not fully as it is to be there on the ground, but God, we see it. We know your heart to bind up the broken. And so we call for wisdom and humility for government and military leaders in search of a better way. We pray for your way of peace to thwart and squash plans to bring violence and harm. Show us your way of love to be vessels of your mercy wherever we are, to be light in darkness, and to be peacemakers in the face of division and unrest. God, meet with us here as we dive into your word, your ancient word that is alive, that is still speaking today. We pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the series that we are embarking on today is a journey that is going to carry us from where we left off last week. We left off with the first humans being ushered out of the garden. We see sin enter into the picture, the consequences of humanity going its own way. And so we go from that place, and this will carry us through to the hopeful advent 
of the first coming of Jesus to open the door to re-enter into the space where the people of God are thriving in the place of God, fully dwelling in the presence of God. And so we're going to open up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, we find it nearly right in the middle of the 66 books of the Bible. For those of you who have an a actual paper Bible with you, fun party trick. Um, if you go to the halfway point, just eyeball it, go to the halfway point, and you're likely going to land in Psalms. Nice. You can almost guarantee it. If you go to that halfway point, flop it open, you're going to be in Psalms. So if you want to bet money on it, that's your business. Um, at the next party, you find yourselves with a paperback Bible. <laughs> then if you flip to the right just a bit, you're going to pass Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, and you're going to land in Isaiah. In the midst of the 66 books, halfway between the bookends, the bookends of Eden, dwelling in the presence of God, to the other end in Revelation, when there is a return to being fully in the presence of God, in the middle of salvation history, we find Isaiah speaking the words of God to the people of God. What I mean by salvation history is this unfolding from that Genesis 3 moment when there is an ushering out of the garden, the rescue plan that is set forth in motion. And so salvation history is the story of this rescue plan bringing us forward to where we are, and the rescue plan that continues through our story to the coming again of Jesus to set all things right. When the new heaven and new earth are fully aligned and we are again thriving in the presence of God, our creator. And so halfway through, we find Isaiah speaking to the people of God. It is really key in this moment, and as we move forward in the book of Isaiah, that we have to make a distinction between ancient Israel and the Israel we know today as the nation-state of Israel. This distinction is really, really important, especially in today's passage. And so as we even read the scripture and where it uses the word Israel, I will do my best to insert ancient Israel or the people of God or the chosen ones because it's speaking to that which was God's salvation plan, the rescue through the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it is speaking to the people carrying that forward, the people of God set apart to reflect the character of God to the rest of the world. And so carry that forward to the time of Jesus. And Jesus then invites us, all of us, most of us in the room would be Gentiles of that day, Inviting us, that door being opened more broadly, and the people of God being those who would follow Jesus. And so if we are going to insert any modern day context of what Israel is in the scripture here through Isaiah, it would be best interpreted as the people of God, and that includes us. That includes the church as a part of God's salvation plan, the rescue 
plan for all of humanity that we now are called forth to reflect the character of God to the world around us. So it's you and it's me as we carry this forward and let it speak to us in this time. So if I say Israel, I am not talking today about the nation state of Israel, which is a democracy, which is its own government set apart from what was a theocracy led by a monarch through ancient Israel. And we'll look at that more in just a moment. With that, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. And it'll be on the screen for you here as well. This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So, at the risk of putting you all to sleep before we even get started, this passage has a whole lot for us. It sets us in a time and a place. And as we look at some maps in just a minute, y'all, we're going to have timelines and maps, and I, like, geek out on all of these things. So, just stick with me, okay? Stick with me. This passage, at first glance, can be like, ugh, what, what, <laughs> right? Who are these people, and why does any of it matter? But God speaks always into a specific time and a specific place to people. His word is incarnational. That is, that it enters into time and space to meet us. And so it is crucial for us to at least get our bearings in this moment as we begin where Isaiah is going to be speaking to. We're going to find that it's speaking to the past, that is ancient Israel's past, that which has happened, which has brought them to the place of the present for Isaiah, speaking in Isaiah's lifetime, what is happening, what the people of God should do, and then it is going to look to the future for Isaiah, what is to come. And at the same time, in only the way that the living word can do, it will speak to our past, to our present, and to our future. And so this is where we're going to pick up today. Cue that timeline, Ben. <laughs> All right. All right. So, y'all, the Old Testament, to me, has been like just this enigma of like what, who, where, and why. And then my Old Testament professor, Dr. Sandy Richter, who I had the privilege of taking an Isaiah class with and have since gotten to do with you, some of you, a um, study in Isaiah. So for some of you, this may look familiar. This timeline is that it puts it all together in a way that I can understand it. And I hope that it will be a gift to you in making sense of this as well. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to talk through it. And look out, I've got a laser pointer. So <laughs> hang, right, yes, I would be the cat chasing the laser pointer. So this, where we ended last week, Eden, and leaving Eden, right? That humanity decides to go their own way, but instead of God writing it off, the plan that he had God decides to work through humanity, even in their brokenness, even in their rebellion, to go their own way. God chooses to work through people and onward to Noah. We know 
most of us know the story of Noah, that great childhood story of, you know, the world being wiped out by a flood. Um, nothing like putting your kid to bed at night and reading the story of Noah. Then onward to Abraham. Abraham being called by God to be the chosen one to then reflect the image of God that we talked about in Genesis 1 and 2, those foundations being set forth to call those again to the forefront, to remind humanity of who they are. And so Abraham then to reflect the character of God to the nations. God promising to him, making covenant with him to make his offspring greater than all of the stars, more numerous than the stars. We know the story of Abraham doesn't work out quite so perfectly either. Abraham decides to go his own way multiple times. But God continues to work through Abraham to his son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob and to Jacob and the 12 tribes. We know from the story of Jacob then that they, the people go to Egypt to flee the famine that is plaguing the land of Canaan. And so down into Egypt, we find ourselves right here. You'll notice that dates start to pop up. We can't put dates back here, y'all. We just, we don't know. But dates starting to pop up with the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob story on into the land of Egypt, where Joseph there, right, rises into power, that God works through the one who was cast out by all of his 11 brothers. God works through him to bring about the salvation of God's people to deliver them from the famine. And then a Pharaoh rises to power over here that doesn't know Joseph, that doesn't know that Joseph was the one who helped bring them through that famine. And so this numerous nation is then taken into captivity, enslaved by the people of Egypt and the Pharaoh, using them as tools for his empire. And so in that, God hears the cries of his people to be set free, to find rescue through the exodus. And who does God then work through to bring about the exodus? Anybody? Moses, yes. Moses, then coming up, bringing the people out of Egypt. God leading them, pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, to walk with them, and though they have been rescued, the people still decide to choose their own way yet again. Making idols to worship, longing to be back in captivity in Egypt. And so, because of that, the consequences of that. They find themselves wandering in the desert for not 40 days, 40 years. But God has not forgotten them, providing for them day in and day out, manna, water in the desert. And then Joshua. Joshua rises up after Moses, and Joshua, the one to lead the people of God into the promised land, the land that was promised all the way back at Abraham. So we'll notice the story of God continues to unfold over time. This rescue plan unfolds even though time and time again the people of God decide to go their own way and rebel again. The same that we saw in the garden and why it was so important for us to set the foundation through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
we see the same unfold again and again, people choosing their own way. And so they enter into the land, the promised land. And from there, is it all set right? No, it is not. Through the period of the judges, and then we get the prophet Samuel set forth. And you can, can see it carries us through this period to where the people of Israel then say, hey, all of the other nations around us have kings. We should have a king. But God's like, I'm your king. I'm the one. Look to me. Trust in me. Remember all the way through all of this. Trust me that you can reflect my character to those other nations around you. But instead, they continue to cry for a king, and God says, okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. But I don't think you know what you're asking for. And so Saul becomes the first monarch of the united kingdom of ancient Israel. The story of Saul does not go so well. He soon, instead of trusting in God, trusts his own ways and so God decides to rise up another to be king. And there we get King David, who goes down in history as the greatest king of ancient Israel. Though we know his story too. And there is brokenness. There is going his own way. And what comes back around to him being remembered as the greatest king in Israel's history is his repentant heart, his broken and contrite heart for what he has done. And so after him comes King Solomon, full of wisdom, and yet there is brokenness. Brokenness such that it is handed down to the generations to follow. And so in a monarchy, then usually, right, there is a clear heir to the throne the next go-round. But you'll see it stops here, after Solomon, and we get to this place of division. So the united monarchy, the divided monarchy. Can we go to the first map, Ben? Uh, let's go to the second map. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> so this is the United Monarchy. This map looks familiar to what we've been seeing on the news this week. And so this, we're reminded that this land is continually fraught with the perils of war and destruction all the way back even before the monarchy. But the establishment of this, the united monarchy under David, that then is handed off to Saul. So let's flip back to the timeline. As that then progresses, the sons of Solomon fight it out. And there's civil war. And in that civil war, there's a decision then to become two different kingdoms. Two different kingdoms of which God will continue to work and to call his people to himself. That God will continue to work to share his love for the world through this people, even in spite of the people. And so following this, we can call this the northern kingdom. Sometimes as we read in scripture, when it is talking specifically in the prophet Isaiah as Israel, ancient Israel, is the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom being that of a smaller tribe, known mostly made up of Judah, the tribe of Judah, often referred to as Judeans. And so that unfolds on this timeline, and we'll see continues on 
the northern kingdom, which we'll see. The prophet Isaiah pops up right here, which is where we are going to enter into the word today. His calling happens in the year that King Uzziah dies. And so there is still a divided kingdom at the point of Isaiah. And so it can get confusing as we're reading through the prophet Isaiah. There is the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, we will see what this explosion point is right here is the destruction of the northern kingdom. That the Assyrians come in and overtake it. So that divided, let's go back to the divided map then. The first one, that one, yes. So the northern kingdom being this section right here comes to a conclusion at 722 BC when the Assyrians overtake it. You can see it is not that far from the southern kingdom, and so we're going to encounter times when the Assyrians are knocking on the southern kingdom's door as well, wanting to move in. But we'll see that God continues the rescue plan through this people. The southern kingdom, right here, which includes Jerusalem. And back to the timeline one more time for me, Ben. Thank you. And so this is where Isaiah is going to speak. You'll notice there are other prophets listed here too, speaking to that same time frame. Jeremiah, Nahum, Micah, speaking into that same time before what will eventually become the Babylonian exile. That the Babylons not only take over Assyria and all of that land, but they take over the southern kingdom as well and take the people into exile. But there is hope. There is then a return from the exile from which, for which God will continue to work through the people he has called. So with that, what is a prophet? A prophet is one of the official offices in ancient Israel. That there is a king, there is a high priest, and there are prophets. There are people who have had an encounter with God's presence, and then they are commissioned to speak on behalf of God to God's people. They are concerned with the covenant between God and the people God has chosen. The covenant to reflect the character of God to the world around them. So we'll often find prophets, and specifically we will find Isaiah reminding the people of God of their partnership with God. We'll see that that comes often through accusation, accusing them of the ways that they are falling short of upholding the covenant with God. We'll see the prophet calling people to repentance, showing them the way to turn it around, to turn from the ways that they are on that are leading away from God and to turn back to God, to uphold the covenant that they have with them. And then we'll see the prophet's calling of a coming day of judgment, which is the word that says, if you keep on on this path you are on and you decide not to turn around and come back, there is destruction at the end of that path. There are consequences for the actions that you are doing right now that is leading you away from the covenant that you have with God. So the prophets, different from what we would say the gift of prophecy today. There are prophets among us. There are people speaking among us. But in ancient Israel, in ancient Israel, there is an official office commissioned by God, and Isaiah is one of those commissioned by God to speak on his behalf to the people of God. So let's talk a little bit about the authorship quickly of 
this book. You might think it's clear. Isaiah is the author, right? I think it's really amazing that the name Isaiah means Yahweh saves. Hmm. And that is what Isaiah has come to speak, to speak of the salvation of God. But the authorship is debated in the event that you decide to dig in a little bit deeper in this. And I want to commend to you the resources that are on the Sunday page in the teaching section. You know, there are some videos there that are really helpful. If you were here last week, there was a four-minute montage of the 14 years um, of Love Chapel Hill. And um, what I just tried to do in walking through this timeline was like the seven-minute version of um, walking through a thousand years plus of Israel's history. Um, so if you're feeling like that was too fast, um, Sandy Richter actually does a seven-minute version of that much better than I ever could um, that is linked on the, the teaching resources page there um, on the Sunday page in the teaching resources. Um, and there are a couple of Bible Project videos because, well, it wouldn't be the teaching resources if there weren't Bible Project videos there. So take that in as, as you will. But the authorship, should you dig deeper, is debated. That there is um, some question about the latter part of the book of Isaiah. There's a clarity of chapters 1 through 39 this is the prophet Isaiah speaking into the time in which he is living. We can actually reference through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles many of the events that Isaiah is speaking to. We can actually follow along as that story unfolds within Scripture itself. But from 40 to 66, it is speaking clearly to a future and it is speaking so clearly to a future that it is questioned whether Isaiah could have written it because it is so on point for what will happen. There are some who think Isaiah's disciples, those who would have been following him, carried on over the next hundred years of history writing what is the latter half of the book. Some people have thought it may be another author altogether that had little connection to Isaiah. The one thing that continues to convince me and to convince many scholars that it is one author is that it never shows up outside of a unified scroll. Through all of the ancient texts that we have, all of the book of Isaiah is intact. And so as one scroll, Isaiah, the fullness of it, remember the chapters are things that, we, that are ascribed much later to Scripture, but that scroll is unified as one document, not multiples that they have pieced together, but it appears always in one form. So whether you think that Isaiah is alone, the one who wrote it and has the clear vision into the future or whether his disciples may have carried on in his name, it is the word speaking to us, to that specific time and about the things that will come. So real quick on time period, Isaiah's lifetime. So Taylor Swift has a little thing going on right now. The eras... I know which era I am. Um, I'm very old, Taylor. Um, <laughs> and, and by old Taylor, I mean early Taylor. <laughs> oh, look out. Uh, my kids are going to see the movie experience today, the concert experience this afternoon, so I'll give you more on that later. However, I am not going. Um, I am looking at the eras of Isaiah instead of the eras of Taylor. Forgive me, Lord, for making any comparison of Isaiah to Taylor Swift. Um, Isaiah's lifetime is the first piece of this, this time period that the book of Isaiah, that the prophet Isaiah is speaking to. So 739 to 701 is this time of Isaiah's commission and calling to speak to the people of God. 
Then it will speak, looking on past chapter 39, to the Babylonian exile, what will become the destruction of the southern kingdom and the people taken away. Speaking to that time frame of where that begins to unfold, that people are taken from their home in the southern kingdom into Babylon. And then the final piece, looking at 539 to 500, and some scholars date that even 539 to 400, of the return from the exile. That there is a release of the captives from Babylon to return to their homeland. But then it speaks even beyond that. Foretelling, foretelling of the Messiah who will come nearly 760 years later. The arrival of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. Isaiah the prophet speaking of the one who would come 760-ish years before his arrival. So chapter 1. We're going to do this quick, okay? I owe you time from last week because I went way over last week, and so we're going we're gonna to pick this up with a quickness as we look at the first chapter of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, he had a whole lot of things to say to the people of God, and that was his job after all. Speaking on God's behalf, but the people of God didn't have, this is not the scripture in case you're wondering, I am just prefacing what we're about to read into. God's people didn't have a whole lot of interest in listening to what Isaiah had to say. You should know. Life was good in ancient Israel at the time Isaiah was speaking. Though there was a divided monarchy, there was economic prosperity, there was general peace or relative peace, maybe. And there was pride. Pride in themselves that led to complacency and apathy. You see, this chosen people to do, called to do the will of God, deciding again to turn their hearts inward and look at what is best for themselves instead of looking to the world around them. They're making their own way instead of the path laid out for them by their creator. And so though destruction and despair will be the end result, there is a glimmer of hope. I shouldn't have said that. It's not going to be the end result, y'all. Let me retract that, okay? The end result. There is a result that will happen that is destruction and despair. But there is a glimmer of hope for the future redemption through a rescuer that will be the end result. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 1. I have this handy stool here, and I should use it. Um, <laughs> chapter 1, <laughs> verses 1. My kids are like, okay, well, we're buckling in because it's going to be a while. No. no. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right, all right. If it gets to be lunchtime, no. Here we go. All right. Verses 2 through 12, chapter 1. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but the chosen ones do not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate. 
your cities burned with fire, your fields being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would become like Sodom. We would become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of God, our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fattened fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. What Isaiah has just opened up is a can. (laughs) A can that is a case against the people of God who have found themselves complacent, who have found themselves going their own way. It is literally laid out in the written form as a legal case. Imagine yourself in a courtroom. The people of God on trial, but the people of God deny it. No one is listening, and so who does God cry out to? The heavens and the earth, the creation, the animals, are the ones God is calling out to because his people are not listening. Isaiah bringing voice to this case that God has against his people. So much to refer to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if you remember that story. But Abraham pleads to God that he would spare the city. He would spare the destruction of the city if there were a hundred righteous men, if there were 50 righteous men, if there were 10 righteous men, if there were even one righteous person, God would have been willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. But they are destroyed. And so when Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, refers to the people of God as Sodom and Gomorrah, you better believe that they're listening at that point. Will they heed what Isaiah has to say? Not as much. But it gets their attention. Laying out the case that they have left the partnership. That they're more interested in their festivals, in their sacrifices, in building themselves up than they are for what they have been called to do. And so what is their crime? It says that their hands are full of blood. Have they committed murder? Have they committed adultery? Their crime is complacency apathy, and heart turned inward. What does God call to the people of God? 
for them to do in this partnership. Going all the way back to the Pentateuch, the first five books, as God is unfolding this in the midst of Moses' time on that timeline, when God is renewing a covenant with the people, he says, now Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, now Israel, what does your Lord ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving for you today. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it, yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you, to look after the marginalized and the oppressed. It's not something that just shows up in the life of Jesus, y'all. It was the call to the people of God from the very beginning. Because it is the character of God to care for those in need. The least among us, we might say. And so, it reminds me of when Jesus says, right, if you have anger in your heart, then you have committed murder. If you lust after another person, that is adultery. And so in this place of complacency and building themselves up, not caring for the marginalized, they are building this economic prosperity, especially that the southern kingdom holds. They are building this prosperity on the backs of other people. They're more interested, perhaps to bring it forward, in the newest technology, in the biggest house, in the best car, in the best social life that we can imagine, in the best image that we put forth on social media, the ways that the complacency of hearts happens in ancient Israel, happens in our midst still today. That we decide to go our own ways, and yet we are invited into the places of repentance and redemption. So we too can be accused we can hear this call. As we consider less about the environment around us, about, about the people around us, and we do things for our own gain, we find ourselves in the place of the people of God, stepping apart from the partnership that God has invited us into. And so each of us being invited, as Isaiah goes on, to bring about a glimpse of 
repentance and redemption. He says, starting in verse 16 and going down through verse 19, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah is inviting the people of God to return to their cause, to look after the oppressed, to look after the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, to stand against systems of injustice, to not let them just go on around us, to be okay and to be, okay, to be comfortable with the fact, even in our own day, right, that products we purchase are at the hands of human trafficking, of enslavement still today, that the disposable culture that we live in where you get the next thing and you throw the old one away, that we do harm to the planet around us. As Isaiah is speaking, these words, these calls to repent, God is calling us too to find the systems of injustice around us to take his stand against them, to stand up for those who are marginalized and oppressed. And that's the invitation to us today as we come to the table where we're reminded that our sins are as scarlet, but they are washed as white as snow by the blood of Jesus. that the call to love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength is renewed as we receive the grace of the bread and the cup. Reminding that Jesus' body was broken on our behalf. That his blood was poured out for you and for the forgiveness of sin. This is our path to redemption from the present to the future. So I invite you to come today. I invite you to receive the bread and the cup. And as you receive it, be reminded of the path laid out before you to be the people of God here and now. Just as Donna celebrated earlier, it is unfolding in our midst carry on. Let the Lord search your heart to search you and to know you if there is any wrong thing in your heart that he would root it out to set you free that you can live fully as God has called you to do. If you're here today and you haven't, haven't yet said yes to Jesus, I want to invite you into that as well. Friends, that the path that there is a path toward freedom. There is a path that is full of life and full of love. And this was done for your rescue. If that's you, I would love to talk to you after the service today and pray with you. Come Holy Spirit. Pour out your presence on these gifts of the bread and the cup, that they may be for us, your body and your blood, that we can taste and know your goodness. We can taste and know that we are on your path of life, the path of rescue, 
the path of freedom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Friends, we'll come down this side aisle and tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. If you need a gluten-free option, that is available for you on this side as well. Come to the table.